0: With the
1: mania that hit the street with a brand new beat! Come with us. When
2: you
0: shall a us
1: come and remember the magic.
3: What's up, all you rad dudes and dudettes? Welcome to the fourth episode of 90s Disney. I'm your host, A.J. Minotti, joined by my brothers, Mike Minotti. Hello, hello. And Chris Minotti. Hello, how is it going? It's going great. We are here today to talk about... Should have looked at the number, the something-it
0: <laughs> Disney Animation. Of all the research I did, it's, to, like, then it's like everything everything's like the it's 40s, in the 30s, right? right? The 30s, oh, 30s, yeah. There's
2: so many anniversaries all the time. It's, it's hard to keep up. It is funny how for like, the 30s, so it's an animated feature. Like, once they
0: hit 50, it was impressive. We're like, ooh. Anyway, we're talking well, about. Which one was 50. It was, was. Tangled? Tangled was yeah. 50, because,
2: yeah, yeah. Wow, we've already got on <laughs> Anyway. <laughs>
0: Hunchback of Notre
3: Dame is what we're here to talk about. Hunchback in Notre Dame was released in June of 1996. Let me paint a picture for you. In June of 1996, the Nintendo 64 first went on sale in Japan. I believe that summer we played it in a theme park in Toronto for the first time. Yes, that's right.
0: Yeah, Ontario (laughs) plays.
3: Also, in June 1996,
0: another movie came out you might have heard of called Independence Day. I've still never seen that movie. (laughs) Which blows my mind. I've never seen it. In in my mind, it was a scary movie because I saw him destroying the
2: way You and somewhat scary movies. I know, right? Uh, Jay-Z released his debut studio album, Beyond Reasonable Doubt.
0: 34th. 34th anniversary. I told you it was
3: yeah. Okay, I knew what I was talking about. And a notable birthday on June 1st of 1996, a young Tom Holland was born. Oh, We're older than Tom relevant. Holland. We're a lot older than Tom ew, Holland. He's not 16, but he's Mike, also. in his 30s. I can tell you this. You're officially in like middle age.
0: <laughs> no, middle? Third. Third age. <laughs> 30.
3: <laughs> Easy there, Candle.
0: <laughs> so,
3: The Hunchback of Notre Dame.
0: This is our first episode about a movie. That's exciting. It is true. Yes.
3: And uh I have something special coming up, so we'll get to it. Uh, this movie came from an idea from development executive David Stanton. Uh, he was reading... There's an old comic book uh, anthology called Classics Illustrated. Uh, this ran from the 40s into the 70s, and in 1944... They publish an issue that covered The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And in the show notes, uh, I found an archive scan of the comic, which you can read. And it's got that kind of off-putting, realistic art style that you saw in, like, a lot of Saturday, like, like or the Sunday comic strips in the newspaper. You know the ones I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's that. Um, but it's a pretty close retelling by the book. Close, okay. Closer than the movie. Wow. <laughs> And we'll get into some of those differences later in the, the show. There's no silly gargoyles? Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> no. But the goat
0: is there! Apparently, the goat's in the The here. goat is canon. Man, that would well, not a thought? That, yes, that's like telling me that uh, like, Ra- like, Rapunzel, when like the original fairy tale, had a little gecko sight. No, no, like like the goat could tell time by like hitting a tambourine. Like, like wow, well, yeah, that is a
3: detail that is sorely missing in the movie. That's why they were like that. That was the whole witchcraft thing was the, the
0: goat. <laughs> the goat. They should have burned the goat. <laughs> oh, they, hang, <laughs> they they tried to hang the goat. <laughs> like they sleepy <laughs> Try did it not take? Uh, I
3: don't. <laughs> the comic didn't address what happened
0: to the goat. Okay, okay. So maybe they probably did. <laughs> If we were really, if we were all really dedicated, we would have read the Hugo Victor novel. Well, there's, there's a, lot a lot of lot. that going around.
3: <laughs> Again, you'll find out. Um, so anyway, so they they started developing this for an animated film, and uh, this was you know Jeffrey Katzenberg was impressed by the by the idea, and uh, you had Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale. These are the Beauty and the Beast duo. Correct. So like. So they're, they're doing pretty they're, good. <laughs> they're riding pretty high at this point in time. And they were looking for their next project. They were working on an adaptation of the Greek tragedy of Orpheus that they were going to call A Song of the Sea, where they are going to make the main character a whale. And his best friend would be a little blowfish. I'd like to see this revisited somehow.
0: Well, isn't that we kind of have this in Fantasia 2000? There's that whale one. Yeah, I guess. Oh, yeah. The
3: issue, one of the issues um, that... Uh, which one was it now? Gary or Kirk? Interview Gary, yeah. It was Gary who was being interviewed. Um, talked about how one of the biggest issues on it was just the scale of the movie. You had this giant whale talking to this little blowfish who's the size of his eyeball. It's mm. like, how do you frame that? that one? Yeah. It's like, there's that. There's just a lot of story problems. This movie was not coming together. But they're still trying to work on trying to work on Until one day, Jeffrey Katzenberg just called him and said, drop everything. You're in a hunchback. Uh, so they, you know, they 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 kind of went into it and started looking. They they
0: it wasn't like they were like, oh, they got to make this movie. They they were like, you know what? Yeah, there's a well, there, there's a story here. It just came from one kind of like French, almost mildly gothic movie based off like of an old kind of like mildly scary story. To, so there there was like a reason there. It made sense. Mm-hmm. There's continuity. All right. So in the summer of 1993, production was underway. In
3: October of 1993, uh, Gary and Kirk, along with art director David Goetz. A um, number of uh, animators, Alan and Steven Schwartz, all took a trip to Paris uh, for 10 days. They spent three days uh, exploring Notre Dame itself, uh, getting private tours of, like, rarely-glimpsed passageways and stairwells and such. Uh, they visited the Palace of Justice and... Uh, what, what I guess was the original location of the Court of
0: Miracles. I guess so. That's our actual oh, play. I wow. guess now I'm the only one of us three who's actually been to Notre Dame Cathedral. Show off! <laughs> I was there a, a few years ago. I was actually uh, I was in France. I was judging a mobile game awards thing. Cool. Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> and me being me, even though like I was in I was in uh, Marseille, which is like. Pretty far from Paris. But I'm like, well, I got to go to Paris. Not really because of like the Louvre or Notre Dame, but because there's a Disneyland there. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
3: Just in case you were wondering if our credit for the Disney fandom is legit.
0: Yeah. That's why so he was in Paris. I got but to... you still at least did go to Well, North yeah, Utah. well, the train line is right there. So it's what very good. Yeah. So no, it actually is nice. I stayed at a Disneyland Paris hotel and you walk to the train station there and it takes you downtown to uh, everything. So it's fantastic. But I had two highlights of like the things to see in Paris, even ahead of um, of the Eiffel Tower was one. The Louvre Louvre's incredible. Like you have to spend Mm -hmm. a whole day there. But uh, Notre Dame was beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. And the first thing I did, I was in like the courtyard in front of it, like in the movie and I had like my 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 iPhone, and I put in my earbuds, and I just started playing for something. <laughs> <Like>, oh, <laughs> it, started, it was like powerful. I was like, oh, I like that!" I Ten bet. minutes later, I was scanned by some Parisians. It was great. They wanted my. uh, They like came with like a. <laughs> these like this group of young Parisian girls came up with like. Was, not gypsies Not <laughs> 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 Not true What you might believe I know though But they had like Oh you need to
2: sign Our petition And then like Obviously Petition nah, clearly I was on
0: French It's like Oh it's for the, the poor I'm like, oh, I'll, sign Mike, like yes, yeah, I'll sign your petition Yes Yeah I'll sign your petition They're like Oh yeah And like of course Your money right I'm like what And then like It's like Then like five more of them Suddenly show up And surround you You're like Oh god here's 20 bucks Leave me alone <laughs> But they're like Here's this oh, well, She needs money too And then even I'm like Alright leave me alone <laughs> <laughs> but uh about to go inside and mass was actually going on and I was able to actually kind of sneak in and get communion there. We're, ca- we're Catholic. So that's allowed. Yes. Uh, but it was a, just a, I- I've seen some nice uh, churches, been to Westminster Abbey, some of the other nice ones in Europe and some of the bigger cathedrals in the U S and Notre Dame, like topped them all by far. It no, was sure. just absolutely gorgeous. I wasn't quite up to walking up the bell tower that day. So I just stayed on the ground level, but it was insanely nice. Very cool.
3: So, uh, after this trip and as they're kind of getting into development, obviously now you need a script. Uh, One of the things that Jeffrey Katzenberg really changed up when he came to the studios and started working on Beauty and the Beast, um, animation really didn't use a traditional screenplay. They were just all storyboarded, Exactly, They kind of storyboarded it, roughed it out. I mean, they obviously had to write down the lines for the actors, but it was never really like, let's start with a script. It was always, here's an idea, let's see where it goes. He kind of really changed that.
0: A lot of the animators were kind of resistant to it, but in the end, it, it was the right way to go. So, my my vision of Jeffrey Katzberg has always been kind of painted by that waking, sleeping beauty documentary. Yeah, it's not like, a very good look for him. It's, which is a bad look for him, but, like, it's almost such a bad look for him yet to kind of be like, this cl- This must be, like, pitted I'm, I'm against sure him a I'm sure shades of gray bit. every
3: way you look. I mean, look, let's not deny He was in charge during one of the greatest periods of animation right. that's Well, even after that, he went to DreamWorks and DreamWorks yeah, made some
2: so well. pretty good movies, <laughs> too, <Right. laughs> so. So... Tab
3: Murphy is brought in as a writer, and in preparing for the show, I was looking for anyone I could possibly talk to, and Tab came up, and I was able to get in touch with him, and he very graciously uh, agreed to an interview. So, How cool is that? I
0: just to say, Jay, I'm, I'm impressed. I thought I was the journalist here. You actually got to <laughs> You're the, the faux journalist. Yeah, I know. You got... You have a 30-minute-something interview with the screenwriter of this movie, and he has a lot of really interesting things to say. So... He was
3: incredibly gracious. We had a great conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. I'm going to play it in its entirety now. You're going to hear stories about this movie that I never came across in my research. So
0: I think a lot of this is going to be the first time you're hearing it, so I really hope you guys enjoy it. As someone who just loves this movie, this was super fun to listen to. So uh, here you go. Here's my interview
3: with Tab Murphy. We'd like to welcome the first guest here on 90s Disney. He is a screenwriter who has worked on such Disney classics as Tarzan, Atlantis, The Lost Empire, Brother Bear, and of course, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He's also written for Batman, The Thundercats, uh, was nominated for an Oscar for Gorillas in the Mist, and wrote and directed the 1995 film Last of the Dogmen, which I understand is coming to Blu-ray soon. Uh, So I'd like to welcome to the show, Tab Murphy. Tab, thanks for joining me. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So... Uh, obviously, we're talking about Hunchback and Notre Dame uh, for this episode of 90s Disney. And what I kind of wanted to learn from you is this was the first film you worked on for Disney. So how did uh, how did you
1: become involved in, it in the first place? Well, that really came about as a result of my first job uh, writing a live action script. I wrote it for Paramount. Uh, I wrote it for Eddie Murphy, who'd come out of Saturday Night Live and made a big deal. And they were developing a lot of material for him. So the very first job I got, which took me out of 7-eleven. I was so sad to say goodbye to 7-eleven. Uh, took me out of 7-eleven, and, and here I was, I you know, like writing a, a script for Eddie Murphy at Paramount. And at Paramount at that time, Michael Eisner was running Paramount. Jeffrey Katzenberg was the president of production who I was reporting to. So I wrote a script, uh, and they, they really liked it, and they immediately put me on a second script. Um, so that I developed a relationship with Katzenberg uh, and, and that crew and then shortly you know a few years later they all sort of migrated over to Disney they took over Disney. and Jeffrey took over the animation division and by that time I was really trying to get a movie off the ground you mentioned Last of the Dogmen I was trying to I was so obsessed with wanting to get that movie made and directed and, uh, and, and I had a producer and we were close and we were, and, 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 during that time, um, Jeffrey reached out through some of his executives to me, uh, and said, "What you know, come on over and see what we're doing. Now you have to remember at that time we're talking the early nineties, uh, the, the true Renaissance had yet to really begin. I mean, it was about to take off. I mean, because little mermaid had been released and I think, um, uh, Beauty and the Beast was about to be released, and that really sign- signaled... Beauty and the Beast really signaled, like, everybody sat up and took notice, because here was an animated feature that got nominated for Best Picture. Remember? Absolutely. And, and it was really a fabulous movie. I mean, it just really was a fabulous movie. And I, you know, I loved the animation when I was a kid, but I still, in those... Early days of the '90s, I, I looked at his cartoons and I looked at his kid stuff, and I really wanted to be a serious filmmaker. And I, did, I was like, I don't want to, you know, like thanks, but no thanks, kind of, right? So I kept saying no uh, to, to, to going in, and then I, uh, so I had, I have the dubious distinction of having turned down Toy Story. But I'll just, <laughs> oh, put, no. I'll just put that out there right now, uh, uh, you know, but. Uh, I have to say, you know, like in, you know, uh, in my defense, the way it was put to me was I had lunch with one of the executives and they were like, yeah, we just acquired this little company uh, up in Marin County and we're going to do our first, you know, computer generated uh, uh, animated film. And uh, it's about a boy and his toys who come alive and. If you're interested, you would have to, you know, move up to Marin County for two years. That's the commitment we're looking for. And I was like that, you know, for me, I was just about to get a movie finance off the ground that I was going to direct. So that was an easy pass. Right. But hindsight is 2020. You know, you all, you, I wonder once in a while, like, if I would have just chucked it all and gone up to Marin County, what where would I be now? But anyway, so. Uh, so what came to pass was that I did get my movie financed. Uh, we did get a star, but that guy had to uh, make two other movies before, you know, so we were like, we were in the queue. We were like, you know, like third for takeoff, you know, at LA. So we got to, we had to wait. And right at that time, you know, Jeffrey reached out again and said, just come in and see what we're doing. You know? So I said, why not? Because the reality is, you know what you don't really understand or most people don't understand about screenwriters is that you know it's kind of a blue-collar job <laughs> like we still have to make money you know and there's a lot of uh, projects that are promised to pay off down the road but you know oftentimes they don't or one thing leads to another so I was I needed a job that's the simple simple answer and so I went in and I sat down and they went through a lot of projects that ultimately got made that I was like, yeah not my cup of tea kind of thing. And I don't I wasn't like pretending to be a diva or anything. I just really love to connect to a story before I commit to it. I love to have something that stirs me inside. And, you know, I they had Hercules and they had a couple other things that they were developing and nothing really just like lit, lit a fire under me. Right. So the, the meeting is literally winding down AJ and I'm thinking, well, this was a waste of time and they're probably miffed at me by now. I mean, because I've said no so many times and then like literally it was like, uh, and they said, Oh, and by the way, we're trying to find, if, if we want to do something with this, but we're not sure if there's a movie here. And they, what, what they meant by this was they picked up, they brought out The Hunchback of Notre Dame, like the, the book, and set it on the coffee table. Now, what they didn't understand about me was that as a kid, I grew up, I loved monster movies. I mean, I grew up, I collected famous monsters of Filmland magazine. I watched every scary movie I could get my hands on. In those days growing up in the 60s, that I, where I, when I grew up, Monster movies, you know, like what I like the classic monster movie, the Universal movies, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, The Mummy. And in those days, the Hunchback of Notre Dame was kind of lumped in with those, even though, you know, Quasimodo was not really a monster. I mean, he was perceived as a monster by the the, the Parisians, but he wasn't, but he still, those movies, he still lumped in, that movie still lumped in with a, that candidate. So I was very familiar with that story. I loved it. Uh, and it was like lightning struck me i said i'm in i didn't even i didn't even hesitate. i said okay yeah i'm in let's i want to do that i want to do that so that's how i i got initially uh involved in 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 it and uh but it was very uh they weren't sure there was a movie there I mean, they, they were like, there's something in here. We're not sure if there's a movie here. Because Disney had a very strict parameters about what would constitute an animated movie in their mind. And those boxes all had to be checked off. And there were a few boxes that weren't checked that they, they were just like, we're not sure. You know, if this is, but we think there's something there. So my job really initially was to go away and write a treatment and find the animated movie in that huge rather adult (laughs) themed book, which was a challenge. I mean, you know, like, and I was like, even in that meeting, I was like, guys, are you sure? I mean, this is the material in here. I mean, I'm, I know this story and it's very adult. Uh, And they said, look, we, we don't want you to shy away from that. So don't censor yourself when you write this treatment. I mean, obviously you have to keep in mind, yes, it's a Disney movie. I mean, but don't censor yourself to the point to the we can't take this book, and I said the same thing, we can't take this piece of literature, this classic piece of literature, and turn it into a kids' movie with singing and dancing and and all sorts of songs with that totally waters down the thematics of the of the entire story. That would be ludicrous. I mean, not to mention that everybody in France would probably you know, stop going to Disneyland, right? <laughs> Paris, <laughs> like, and and pick it and all this stuff. So, what they said was, "What's great?" They said, "Look, you do, you write the story you want to write. You know the story, you know the characters, you know the thematics. Write it, and if it's too far in one direction, we can always pull it back. You know, we'll we'll rein you in, but just go for it." So that was great. I mean, that was a lot of freedom to go out and and. And I'm sorry, I'm going on and on, but I'm just in street consciousness about how it all came to be. And so I went home, and I and the, really the the thing I had to discover. I mean, there were great characters, there's great relationships, there were obviously certain things had to be toned down, but there was a great central story about a, 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 a you know Quasimodo who yearned to belong and 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 felt different and 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 every teenager could identify that in my mind everybody every teenager could identify with quasimodo's plight so that was a connective connection into disney's you know audience number 1 but number 2 it had to have it could i mean he lived up in a bell tower and it was dark and it was Dismal, and it was it, 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 the movie couldn't be so gothic and dour and depressing. There had to be color and life and you know magic and you know all the things that Disney movies, animated movies, uh, rely on. Um, so I really broke the back though when I I just kept thinking about it. And I kept thinking, about it and I said, well, why not? Yes, he lives up in this gloomy place, and he's being kept up there. And he, you know, and and, and, and he's got a terrible stepfather who isn't even really a stepfather. Um, I said, well, what if he has this am- amazing, colorful internal fantasy world that he brings alive up there? And so that gave rise to the gargoyles. That gave rise to characters he could talk to. That he could, you know, you know, that understood his plight. And that gave rise to uh, this, you know, the the things that Disney needed. Those other boxes that they could check off and say, okay, we got it now. We we can make this into an animated film without, you know, really. To, you know, watering it down too much. We can keep a lot of the things that make it, you know, uh, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's not the most uplifting story in the world. They didn't want, they, they were like, look, we don't want the audience to leave depressed. We want them to leave hopeful. We want them to leave feeling good about Quasimodo, not that, oh my God, the poor guy, you know. And that was the other challenge in the story, too. And so when ultimately at the end of the movie, when Quasimodo understands, you know, that he and Esmeralda were never going to have a romantic relationship, that understanding opened his heart up to having relationships with the rest of the people of Paris, which is really what he was after from the very beginning. He wanted to belong to something bigger than himself, you know, and so that I think we pulled it off, you know.
3: I'd agree. So you get like half the questions I was going to ask, which is I'm awesome. sorry. That's, no, that's, you know, phenomenal. that's such a long response. But no, it's fantastic. So well, so one of the things I kind of want to touch on a little bit is um, so I know like like going into the 90s when Katzenberg took over, he, he really kind of started changing the way these films were written. Whereas in the yeah. past, it was a lot of just kind of storyboarding and work as you go. And he really wanted to bring in screenplays. Um, yes. So how well, how how are you interacting with that evolving process?
1: Well, for me, it was great because uh, he wanted to bring a live action sensibility to the development of these projects. He really believed in the written word. He really believed that a strong script. Guaranteed almost a much stronger animated movie because we weren't it wasn't about oh, reining in all the artists and everything. It was about, let's start with a solid base, a solid foundation of a story we know that works, and then let's turn turn all those board artists and directors that turn their creativity loose on what we already, already know is good, rather than just, you know, sort of you know developing in a way and 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 sort of finding your way to the story or through you know and I don't look I mean you know, look Disney has a tremendous history of animated movies and I would never say that you know the development of any of those classics was done wrong it just was with Jeffrey he just wanted to you know bring a live action sensibility to it so he commi- he wanted to commission scripts and otherwise, I would have never got an opportunity to, to do what I did or, or write the movies I wrote. So I was very thankful that that was the way they wanted to develop. So very early on, I was just working with the directors, usually ahead of story. And that was it. And we were, you know, and, and the producer and we were trying to figure out, you know, and we were, you know, and, and I was given a lot of free reign to. Yeah, I mean, like, when I turned in my treatment, I think I wrote a 22 or 25-page treatment for Hunchback. Jeffrey called me, like, he called me and said, I'm, I'm greenlighting this movie off this treatment. I'm just telling you, it's great. Now, that's, when you're just working with a core group at that point, that's really exciting stuff, you know. So I always had a great time beginning the movies that I wrote for Disney. I always liken it to being a starting pitcher in the seventh game of the world series my job in those all those movies was to come in and get a lead pitch seven innings and get a lead that the closers could come in other writers and and you know because it because of the process i'm sure you're familiar with you just can't one writer cannot write an animated movie at disney it's just impossible because as the movie progresses They're not making the movie from the beginning and animating it all the way to the end. They're animating the entire movie in different places all the way through production. So things come up. Scenes need to be tweaked, need to be written. Dialogue needs to be polished. This one writer cannot be in 12 places at once. It's just impossible. So um, anyway, so that was always my goal, was to make sure that they had a solid foundation. Uh, it, it, you know in terms of story and in terms of where the, the the characters and the development of all of those pieces so that they could go off and work their magic and make it even better which is what they did on hunchback you know right and all of the movies frankly mm-hmm. so you, you touch
3: this a little bit but obviously obviously you went like off the book quite a bit like you know Quasimodo and Esmeralda don't die at the end, which is obviously a big no, change. no, no.
1: I mean, yeah, there were just certain things you couldn't do. We knew right, right in front, and there were just certain sections of the book you just had to chop out and mm-hmm. characters and things. But you know that the, the, you you really distill it down to the core, which is the core characters were Phoebus, Esmeralda, Quasimodo, and Frollo. So through Esmeralda, you got to meet the gypsies. Through Phoebus, it was he was one of the you know the. I can't remember the, the, you know, the word, but you 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 understood him and where his what his where he stood in the social strata of, of Paris at that time. You understood Frollo as this tortured you know soul, and and so you got a you got a complete look at Paris through these four characters in in so many ways. In that in in that time period in that day, and so it was it was great. It was it was a lot of fun. So when you're approaching a historical work like this, how much
3: how how much do you find it useful to not only go back to the source text, but just kind of study up on the, the time period
1: itself? Well, you know, I'll get you know I'll, uh, I'll, a little secret. I never really read completely Victor Hugo's novel. I mean, that's just like
3: it's. I tried to read it once in high school too, and I was yeah, like, that's just like.
1: So, you know what I relied on? I watched the Lon Chaney Senior Hunchback. Mm -hmm. I watched Charles Lawton Hunchback. And I really just, you know, like we uh, knew that we were going to age down Quasimodo so that he was going to be sort of like uh I don't want to say 19 or 20 or 21 but somewhere in his early 20s and <laughs> and and make him more accessible to the, the Disney audience and very childlike because he'd been kept up there and 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 just good heart you know a good heart and from that, you know, we could go with, you know, all of the things that worked on him and, you know, and so many things. It wasn't that difficult. Like, you know, to, to, when he first goes out and he gets put on the pillory and, you know, I mean, of course, in the movies, he's, he's whipped. And it's just a, it's just gut wrenching, that sequence in, in, in almost every iteration of the of the film. We, you know, in our obviously we we're not going to whip the guy, you know, in the Disney movie. So we just put a spin on that. We put a spin on that, that he, you know, is, 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 you know, the people throw food at him and they, they mock him and they laugh at him. So it's in a way, it was more like bullying. It's what people, and you know, we, we wanted him to, you know, and so that's what the young people connected to the idea that being different, being bullied by people that you wanted to just you know, be a part of, wanted to, you know, like them to like you and to welcome you and to, uh, you know, you know, and I swear, I mean, to this day, and I mean, really interesting because, you know, I mean, in my career, you know, I wrote those movies in the nineties and you kind of move on to other things and you don't really think about them that much. Uh, you're proud of them. You're proud of the work and things, but I still get, I mean, just the other, like a couple of weeks ago, You know, I was in a bar with my girlfriend and I had to go to the restroom and and she was sitting next to a couple of guys that she overheard talking and they were talking about the hunchback and what and they were young. They were in their early 20s, mid 20s. And then one guy was like, oh, that movie, that movie changed my life and blah, blah, blah and all this stuff. So and I'm walking back from the restroom. And my girlfriend tapped that guy on the shoulder and said, I heard you overheard you talking about the hunchback. you, know, you really like that movie. He said, Oh, I love that movie. That movie was like when I was a kid. And she goes, Well, this guy right here, he wrote that movie. And <laughs> you should have seen his eyes, man. He just went out of his mind. But he 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 had to I had to sit down and he had to tell me how important that movie was for him at a certain time in his life because he felt like that outsider. He said, I felt I didn't I thought I was alone in the world. I mean, I didn't have any friends. And I and when I saw that movie, that movie just gave me hope, man. And I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful that, you know, a movie like that can, you know, can can really I didn't I not that I took them for granted, but it just really I mean, I, I was uh, I was really like knocked out by that, you know, well,
3: it's like you said, it, when you started, it was a job. And I think when it's
1: something that endures 20 years later, it, it does evolve into something else. Well, it does. And, it, you know, and I'm now just I look back and I'm just grateful that I was a part of it. I was a part of the process. But, you know, I was a small part of that process, dude. Yeah, I may have cracked the story a little bit and I and I may have, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, been able to sort of lay a foundation. But, you know, the people I was working with there, the artists and the artistry of the artists. It just blew my mind. And it was so much fun because in those days, I mean, y- y- yes, you had to report and there were story, you know, like people pitched boards and then, you know, like Jeffrey would sit in on them and stuff, but they were trusted. They were pretty much, you know, not left alone, but they were pretty much said, given, you know, like... The, the freedom to express themselves artistically all the way down the line in that movie, from the directors to the producer to the art directors. I mean, you know, like dude, I, it's just amazing uh, to be around that kind of talent. It was really a lot of fun, which is why I kept doing them, which is why, I you know, I took a right turn into animation world. And I didn't leave for like 10 years, man, because it was just so much fun and so great to be in a room with other creatives and, and just the buzz of, of things unfolding and happening. And, you know, that, you know, are great ideas that are going to make it into the movie. And it's, it's a lot of fun.
3: So, as you're working on a Disney animated musical, I'm curious to know, like, like, as you're writing it, are you, are you conscious at all in the back of your mind? Like, well, a song's going to go here
1: and, and this part to no, no, be No, it's music. very, no, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that too, because that was, uh, I mean, I knew, I, I knew early on that they were going to have, uh, uh Mencken and Schwartz do the, 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 songs, but they were like, don't worry about it. You just write a great script. And, uh, but then I, and I said, okay, that's cool. So I'll never forget this. I went in. I had. A, I went into a meeting, and Alan uh, Mankin and Steve Schwartz were there. The directors were there. The producer was there. I don't. I can't remember who else was in there, but they literally had taken my screenplay, all the pages, and put them up. Boom. One, two, twenty, twenty-one to forty, all on the, on the wall. And my whole script was up there. So, Mankin and Schwartz are in the room. And I, I don't know. I think it was Alan. I don't know. Maybe Alan or Steve. But they take they took uh, like this red marker, and they walked up to and they started xing out pages script. Song. <laughs> 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 You're like, wait, no, I wrote that. <laughs> no, no, this is this is great too because they must have seen the look on my face after the third song, because, and they and, and uh, Alan Macon said, no, 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 tab, tab. No, no, no. It's not. We're not destroying your script. We're going to use what you've written to inspire us and we're going to use your dialogue and, and all that stuff is it's, it's going to be great trust us it's going to be great <laughs> and i was just like i think that I, I don't know if i had tears in my eyes at that point or what but i was like that was my best scene man <laughs> anyway but it it was uh, i was getting an education too in the process so it, it, of it, of animation and especially animating with uh, with songs and a and a musical And uh, I just, those guys were great. They were so, they, you know, they just really wrote some terrific songs. And, uh, in fact, I'll share one other little anecdote, and that is, uh, you know, they would send in, this was back in the 90s, so they would, you know, they would, you know, we'd go in for production meetings, and they would send in little cassette tapes that they'd recorded. And it was just Mencken on piano, Schwartz singing, or vice versa. I don't know how they did it, but they, yeah, they they would do it. They would send the in very rough form to us or to the directors to listen to, and the producer to listen to. And this would, you know, then they they make notes and stuff. So I was in the room with uh, Kirk and Gary and Don the day they got the cassette for Hellfire, and they were excited about this song because they were like, this sequence was really going to be something special, and. So we retired to one of their offices. I think it was Kirk's or whatever, and we we put the little cassette in this, eight, you know, this little player, and we played it. And the st- the song starts, and I'm looking around, and everybody's like, their eyes are getting wider and wider as this song goes on, because you know, I mean, you know the song. I mean, it's pretty. <laughs> you know, it's about a, I mean, a guy's yearning and desire, unholy desire, for a young, nubile gypsy and how he's dealing with that, right? Um. So I'll never forget, the song ends, and Kirk looks around the room and he goes, well, that's never going to make it in the movie. <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and it did. It did. So that's what I I have to give Disney props because I don't think they would make that movie this, these days. I don't think they would make Hunchback the way they made it then, today. It's just too, it's the climate is too cautionary. You know what I mean? So I, I really look, I look fondly on that movie because it is of a place and time in the Disney canon. And, uh, you know, it, you know, it's still a pretty powerful piece of filmmaking, you know? For sure. So, I guess,
3: like, as you watch the movie today, like, are there any, like, scenes you remember writing that got ultimately cut before it even went into production? Like, anything that you, like, remember putting on the page, you're like, oh, I wish I could have seen that on the screen.
1: Uh, oh, boy. It's, uh, I'm trying to think uh nothing comes to mind i mean you know off the top of my head because i think they i you know we kind of uh went back and forth a little bit on the opening uh you know the opening i thought you know i i think i had a much more you know i don't want to say scary but more intense opening uh for the movie uh and uh they you know they sort of I thought they did a great job of completely telling a story, almost as a prologue to the movie. Whereas I was a little bit more, you know, sort of, uh, you know. So, but you know, to answer your question, when I saw, I, I was involved. I saw rough cuts of everything, and and uh, and animatics, and and they were, you know, like it was great because they took scenes of mine and they just added those touches that you can't write in a script that make it the little jewels of of, of animation you know what i mean so I, I you know i i don't recall writing anything that i thought oh they cut out i wanted to see that or they were you know they were pretty they were you know it was, it was a great experience Right now, I had that happen in other movies, but on Hunchback, it was great. And you know, I worked. I think I worked closely with the directors, the producer, and I worked on that for a year, maybe a year and a half. I, I, and then they, and then I went into work one day. I went into the Disney Animation building, and there were all these strange people st- sitting in the room. Well, that's the point where they brought in other writers, and so I was like what do you mean other writers I was like so you know like used to like I was like it's my story you know but that's part of what was the, the, what was great about that experience is that it is such a collaboration and ultimately you know the, the people that came on uh, the writers that came on after me contributed many great things to the movie and, and it was all you just felt a part of something really special you know
3: Great. So, I guess the last thing I was going to kind of ask you just to kind of wind things down, if there were any other stories you had to share about working with Don and Kirk and Gary or any other uh, members of the team that were memorable to you?
1: Well, I, you know, it just was uh, in those days, they were not housed in a cool new animation or in those, you know, it became a new animation building. They were like in some like, Low rent tenement in Burbank that I would go to, and but it was great because it was uh, everybody had a cubicle and everybody was there, and, and they were just uh, coming off the high of Beauty and the Beast, and they really, you know, saw the Hunchback as a tr- terrific follow-up to that movie. It kept them kind of in, although Hunchback isn't really fairy tale. I mean, but it kept them in sort of a period piece and. Paris and a great European feel to the story. And, and, uh, I mean, you know, I just, uh, I had a great time. I spent a lot of time, uh, over there. And, yeah, it was just, you know, there's, and they were very, there were other movies in there too. I think Aladdin was being made in there and they were all very competitive with each other. All very competitive. Like they wanted to outdo each other. And um, so that was, it was fun. It was just, it was fun.
3: And so, um, last thing I just want to bring up too. So, so we know a few months ago, we lost massive portions of Notre Dame Cathedral to, to fire. And as someone who kind of works so closely with, with the, the, memory of that, that structure, what did, what did that uh, mean to you when that was going on?
1: Well, that was a hard, that was a tough day, AJ. That was a really tough day because even though, I mean, I didn't go over there and sit in Notre Dame Cathedral and write the script. Well, you know, I was in that space in my head, for a long, long time, and I knew it. I'd been there, I'd been through it, I, you know, and uh, it was, uh, well, it was devastating. And it was devastating, I think, to a lot of people that worked on the film. Um, it, it just was, it's such an iconic symbol, you know, of Paris and of that particular story. And it was such a huge part of the production design of, of the movie. and. It just, uh, it was heartbreaking, you know, watching it unfold on live TV, you know, and uh, ironically, you know, my kids uh, were in Paris uh, a week before the fire and they got to go to Notre Dame Cathedral and go through it and see it and, you know, like texted me, Dad, we were in Notre Dame, where your movie was, blah, blah, blah. So I was, just, I'm really thrilled that they got to experience it before the fire, you know, Um but, yeah, I mean, you know it it got knocked down, it took a few punches, but i it'll be back it, you know it'll be back, maybe not in my lifetime, but <laughs> the way it was, but it'll 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 bounce back, it'll be back, and it'll be you know there hopefully for future generations, you know, just like the movie, I mean really, uh, it's uh it's so interesting, you know, like uh how the movie. Like, I meet a lot of people, like I told you about the the guy in the bar, but I meet a lot of people in their mid-20s now because they were all kids when that movie came out. And uh, I'll just tell you quickly a brief story. I have a friend uh, that that owns a a production facility in Hawaii, and I was over there a few years ago uh, doing some work with him. and uh, uh, he has a screening room and, and the local uh, film school in Kona uses it occasionally to screen films and they found out I was there and they said hey uh, the, the director said that we want to screen Gorillas in the Mist do you think Tab would do a and a afterwards and uh, so David said what do you think I said yeah that'd be fun I, haven't, I hadn't seen it in like 20 years I was curious to see if it held up still so you know they come the whole class is there there's probably 25 you know early to mid 20s you know early 20s kids, guys, filmmakers, men and women, uh, and they watch the movie Gorillas in the Mist*. And now this is a movie that had been made long before most of them were born, right? Or, or they were just so small. So I do a Q&A afterwards, and, it, and it's it's cool. That they're very respectful. What was it like with the, you know the gorilla? You know, and it's kind of sedate and it's winding down. And so, and then the moderator goes, "Oh, by the way, you may not realize that Tab also wrote." Hunchback of Notre Dame, Tarzan, blah, blah, blah for Disney. Dude, you should have seen that room. I went from kind of an old kind of screenwriter dude to f- rock star, man. It was – a oh, sorry. I just dropped an F-bomb on you. I'll, uh, I'll come up
3: with some Disney-appropriate sound.
1: <laughs> whoops. No, but seriously, I went from like like some old screenwriter to rock star in a minute. It was like – it was Unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And then all the hands shot up. They all had questions, right? And then afterwards, they were like, and this is no joke. They all lined up. There was like 15 or 20 of them lined up to get a selfie with me. Wait till I tell my mom that I met you, you know? And and really, AJ, that was like the first time that I realized the power of these movies, that they really, that they you know, like the, the movies I wrote in particular through the 90s, impacted the whole generation you know so in in terms of like those are the memories they have growing up on those movies and it was really cool it was really cool great time i
3: I can't thank you enough for joining me tonight. Uh, I loved talking with you. Uh, If you have anything you want to pitch to the audience, let them know what you're working on. Let them know where they can keep up with you. The floor
1: is yours. Uh, Well, you know, it's funny. I'm working on a lot of cool stuff, but the coolest thing I'm working on right now is uh, called The Haunted Swordsman, and it's a samurai puppet action adventure. I know. And it's... I would just say, you know, we... uh, my buddy Kevin McTurk is a visual effects artist. He's a puppeteer. He's crazy for puppets. I wrote the script. We did it, you know, we're, we're, we're going to try to sell it as a series, but we we financed a little short that's going to come out and go to film festivals. Keep an eye out for something that's really cool, man. Really cool.
3: Awesome. Well, Tab, thank you so much. Um hopefully if we uh whenever we get around to tarzan or or any
1: other films you worked on maybe we can get you back on again uh, i'd love to, yeah tarzan oh there's great stories about tarzan there's really great stories about atlantis because that was again the whole team that did hunchback that we were trying to find something to do together to keep that team together and it ended up being atlantis so we have a lot of i have a lot of memories about that. so
3: so what you should know is atlantis is actually one of my absolute favorite movies and even ah. though it came, even though it came out in 2001, I know you guys worked on it in the 90s, so I might I might pull a technicality rule on that
1: one. Well, you know, it's funny because we were trying to get it released in 2000. We thought we thought that Y2K would be the perfect time to release it, you know. But it was it just went a little longer than we anticipated. But yeah, if you can cheat it over, I'd be happy to come back and talk about Atlanta. So it was a that, great project. <laughs> that's motivation for me. So <laughs> okay, cool.
3: everyone will have to forgive me an indulgence on that one. We'll tap. Again, Again, thank you so much. Um, great
1: talking to you and uh, best of luck to you. Likewise and best of luck with your podcast and uh, and hello to all the Disney fans out there.
2: Man, how great was that? Again, yeah, He's just such a great guy. So, so
0: gracious with his time. So happy to I mean, talk let's about be honest. We're a young upstart podcast. Just, just really oh, just going he, here. He didn't have to he do that. He did not have to do that. He was he very was gracious with his time. super about the whole thing. So,
3: yeah, it's... Uh, it, it was it was a real treat, and uh, just just to, you know, it's so funny just to, to to go on a little personal tangent. But you know, I mean, we watched these films. From, what 1996? I was twelve years old when I saw this movie. I love this movie until, I mean, until like Atl- it goes like Atlantis and Wreck It Ralph, and this are like my top three Disney films.
2: Well, to this day, how often do we talk about the music? Listen to the music? Yeah. Create and, your own parodies of the music. And did I ever
3: like did that twelve year old boy ever think <laughs> that someday he'd be like? Video interviewing the guy who wrote this movie. If well, only you cleaned your room beforehand. This <laughs> is <laughs> audio. They, they don't, they don't, yeah, thanks. you said video though. Well, <laughs> there is a video. You'll never
0: get to see so it. So many. There are so many things from that interview I loved. Just hearing about Hellfire and how even like the directors and them were like, "Well, <laughs> well this this is of course clear. not." No. <laughs> it, thank God though, because that is the, the best it's, part of it's that movie. The best thing it is Disney may have ever so, done. The it's so the animation. In that sequence, especially when those like weird red-robed like saints or whatever they are, they like. St- conglomerates and then like swoop into the fireplace and turn into the fire oh so good. my it's god incredible. it's insane it's incredible. also i kind of love that he hasn't read the book right it makes you feel a little better about all those book reports well, you kind of i mean like slump your you were saying earlier they were, they were so you know someone else was influenced by the comic he was influenced by the movie i think you know there were so many adaptations of this mm-hmm. and that's what a lot of
3: people want well,
0: to understand again
3: I've never read the book either. It's one of those books that, like, at some point in high school or college, it's like, I'm going to read The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And you kind of look at it, and you're like, no, oh, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> From what I understand of reading the actual novel, like, half of it is literally just describing the cathedral. Victor Hugo was very obsessed with this building to a degree. Sure. And I think, more than anything, this this book was just his, his excuse to really kind of, you know, show off the cathedral. It was a point of pride. And I think that's what the book was about for him. What is- now, what, what Disney did and what Tab did with his script is they really latched on to Quasimodo's character. Because in, in the book, he's really not the main draw of, of the story at all. He's kind of a tool used by Frollo. Um but Disney decided, you know, we need... So we it's Warren st-
2: Frollo's perspective? Well, and when you're in the book, it's... There's a lot of different perspectives, I think. So just yeah, around. I mean,
3: it's Esmeralda, and again, I, I was going to get into the, the, the differences uh, later on, but real quick. So Pierre Gringoire, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong. He was a real life poet who was fictionalized as a character in the novel, and is kind of the narrator as well. But he's is a, like the Clopon character. No, he. So he, Phoebus in the Disney movie is a mix of Phoebus from the novel and this guy. Okay. He kind of is first drawn to Esmeralda, and
0: again, we'll get I into mean, it. it's convoluted. The, the big thing in the movie is everybody's into Esmeralda, basically. I mean, the book. That's kind of what's going on. Everyone's kind of yes, there. <laughs> yes. Uh, exactly. So, I
3: mean, really it's, it's kind of Esmeralda's, I guess you'd say she's, it's hard to say. I think she, you'd call her the main character. Right.
0: I mean, look, it's this, this is kind of before the hero's journey. We don't quite have the structures of novels being obeyed at all times here. Right, right, exactly. So,
3: you know, we're, we're in a very different time. Mm-hmm. So obviously the, the, one of the biggest changes to
0: the Disney film was the inclusion of the gargoyles. Um, and I was, I was, part of me, I think some people are always like, that must have been some like corporate mandate. But no, that was Ted. He, he was, that was his idea. Uh-huh. And that was part of what kind of obviously like made it suddenly be like a movie that Disney could actually get behind.
3: Well, so you needed comedic relief in this film. It's, you know, fundamentally, it's still a movie for kids. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. There's a great article written by, you know, famed uh, Disney historian Jim Hill uh, that's archived over at laughingplace.com where he really dives into the story of kind of how these characters were developed and how they were cast. Um, very interesting. You should go read it, but I'll kind of break it down for you a little bit here. So they were trying to look for the, you know these kind of comedic sidekick characters for Quasimodo. Originally, they considered birds and animals, kind of Cinderella-esque, but the problem was it was kind of Cinderella-esque. Yeah, been there, done that. Exactly. Like They were going to literally like help him with chores and stuff like that. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. Um, so they came with this idea of, of the gargoyles. Um originally, one of the first person cast for this movie was Sidney Lopper. How about that? And apparently she's been for like a, for a decade at that point, had been trying to get into a Disney film. Big Disney fan wanted to do it, wanted to do it. You know, they, 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 they told her they wanted her to audition. She knew his hunchback. She thought it was like for Esmeralda. Like, no, I want you to be a gargoyle. And she's like, well, OK, I really want to be in this movie. OK, fine, whatever. So originally, the gargoyle characters were Cheney, Lawton and Quinn and she was going to play Quinn now these names came from Lon Chaney Charles Lofton and Anthony Quinn mm. who were the actors who played Quasimodo previously Disney like in Le- those
0: movies and stuff yeah
3: Disney legal was like mm, I don't know <laughs> uh, they were going to then call them, well how about we just call them Lon Charles and Anthony because they're just like you know first names they're yeah. still like eh! mm. so probably shouldn't do that so they came up with Victor Hugo, which is the author, in Laverne. What's Laverne? Is that just Laverne? Is and I didn't write that. It, it's it's the the one music group, the Sensations. I'm making that up. But it's a music group. It, it was the three sisters who sang, and one of them hey, was oh, Laverne. those people! And that was like that's the funniest name of the three. So she's gonna be Laverne. okay. <laughs> it's not quite as tied to the story, but it was just like well, we need sure. a name. So. In addition to Cindy Laffer, they also cast uh, Sam McMurray as Hugo. He was uh, performing the Tracy Allman show. That's the show where the Simpsons came exactly. from. Yeah, exactly. That's the
0: only reason I know what the hey, Tracy Simpsons Allman Simpsons did it. Yeah.
3: So, they all they had the two of them, and then they always had Charles Kimbra, who who's Victor. And he's Victor in the movie. So, these characters just weren't working. They, they, they redid it once, they redid it twice, they redid it three times. And every time they brought in... Sidney Lauper and Sam McMurray to reread these parts. And it just never felt right. By the third time, they kind of realized that Laverne needed to be this kind of middle ground character between Victor and Hugo, where they kind of were at the two extremes of of doing right, doing not wrong, but just kind of playing a little looser. She was supposed to be more the center, more the, the follow your heart character. And they realized she's the more sincere one. Right. Cindy Lauper sounded too much like
2: Cindy Quasimodo's
3: Lopper. sister yeah. instead of like a wise old aunt, maybe.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why adorable. they
3: decided they needed to, to change that. Um, same thing with Sam McMurray, it just it wasn't working. So they had to let them go. And Kirk and Gary felt terrible about it. They 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 were the ones to tell Cindy Lopper, like, we're very sorry, but this we're changing the direction of this character,
2: and your Oof. voice just isn't right for it. It's nothing you did, your performance yeah. was great. So but, did she ever get her wish of being in a Disney film? No, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to think. Like they couldn't even put her in *Lady in the Tramp* two or something stupid. Right on <laughs> the rain, Poor <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh,
3: apparently she did not take mm. to it very well. So maybe there's some bad blood. know. <sighs> <of it again, sighs> but yeah. So same thing with um with Hugo. The, the problem was like the character became kind of too gross. They needed to find someone who could kind of walk that line of being, you know, comically flatulent but sincere and that makes you think of George Costanza obviously well literally that's what happened so you know uh, Jason Alexander another guy really wanted to be in a Disney movie he auditioned for LeFou he auditioned for Pumbaa didn't get them but his big break came playing Abyssinale in the 1994 direct-to-video sequel to Aladdin, The Return of
0: Jafar. The original uh, direct-to-video sequel. Pretty good movie. Yeah, <laughs> I will it's, say. It's incredible to think now that that might be a live-action movie, <laughs> considering like really, how much m- money. Well, the problem is, though, like, Iago is kind of the main character. Of that yeah, you movie. can, like, I don't know. Look, <laughs> they already made Aladdin a sure the live-action movie. I'm sure they'll
3: figure out if they want to do it. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so they bring in Jason, and he just nails it. Gets the character completely right. So now they're dealing with Laverne. They go to veteran actress Mary Wicks, who's been working as an actress since the 40s, has a huge bill that went all the way up to the Sister Act movies. That was kind of like her, oh. one of her like big roles. I've
0: never seen those. I feel bad. Oh, I I've seen
3: bits of them. I've yeah, never seen them good. straight through. Most
0: of what I've seen is from the ending montage at the Great Movie Ride. That's <laughs> so, yeah, a good montage.
3: So, <laughs> not much.
2: Not much. <laughs> not much. <laughs> not <laughs> much, <Chris. laughs>
3: uh, So, yeah, so... She's brought in. She has this kind of older voice. You know, she's like in her 80s at this point. So, so again, she's perfect.
0: Bless
2: her.
3: So that's how you kind of end up with these three characters, how they're working in the film, how you get the
2: cast. And they're you big. Can you imagine numbers. this film like without those gargoyles and just how, it, like, it wouldn't
0: work? And well, so would.
2: so or a so, Disney uh, film,
0: I guess I guess I am kind of curious, like, what do we think of because of the gargoyles? Because I think it's the easiest point of criticism for some people. Well, sure, because, again, you, like you said, people see this like, oh, here's Disney saying we've got to sell toys. Let's right. get some cartoon
3: characters in there.
0: But you definitely, in our serious movie about- you definitely need the levity. I think the one point where maybe it goes too far is their shenanigans during Heaven's Light. Maybe it could have done for a little bit less of it, just there specifically. See, I think it, I, it works for me, because what I like about it
3: is it's the kind of thing where it's visual. So if you're just, like, listening to the song, right. it, it's not like
2: they're farting through the song or something, right.
0: you know? No, it's... Yeah, there is something that like, they're doing they're weird, they're drawing. Yeah, the,
2: imagine, like, a child, you know, listening right. to this song, like, they're gonna like right. it, but they they're already they sat through Hellfire. Through the <laughs> they're <laughs> about to sit through Even Hellfire. Even us, yeah, um, we, especially we love this movie. Now, when we were, like,
0: kids in the 90s, we weren't, like, in love with it. Like, I, no. I was. Uh, but I appreciate... <laughs> I, I, I was 12, I, I was mature. I, I appreciate it more now than I probably oh, did sure, when
2: it sure, came sure. out but they just came in great times to break up the seriousness Well, yeah, and, and, and the, the
3: perfect point of that is the song A Guy Like You because again so as they're working on the script they realize they have this moment in the film where things are really bad <laughs> the darkest Fro- moment Frollo's burning the city Phoebus <laughs> has been shot Esmeralda jumps <laughs> in the, the water to save him
0: people are dying
3: Quasimodo's like oh no my friends are po- possibly all dead or captured like what's going on it's like what do we do like, well, yeah. like everything kind of sucks right now you gotta break that. the cargo. is a song, bit. and it's a very funny song. The, it is. The, 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 the
0: first line
3: is uh, "Paris, the city of lovers, is burning this evening." True, that's because it's on fire. But still, so there's love. Like that is that's great.
0: that. Real, that visual gag too. He like put he has the hot dog on a second and it, it like kind of goes off frame. <laughs> and then he pulls it back and it's just like one inflamed. It's great. Yeah.
3: So again, it just gives a phenomenal levity that the movie really. Yeah. The, but then. When it gets back into gear and Esmeralda shows up with an injured Phoebus and kisses him, Ooh. like it again, it's just it's that emotional roller yeah, coaster that makes the movie work. You know, it's it. peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. But, yeah. yeah,
2: if that gargoyle humor didn't work, then it, it would just fall in so the flat. The movie be very right? flat. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, you know,
0: again, I think it's an easy point of criticism because it stands out and is the it is the most different thing from the books but you have to have but the goat something. can only get you so far <laughs> look, it's not timon, and the goat's funny <laughs> it's not yeah it's not timon and pumba like farting and like talking to the kids in the audience they didn't Bugs. go that far that and right. everyone loves timon and pumba to be right, right right so i think it was i think it was done well
3: so here's the, the 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 crazy thing too about a guy like you which makes it a little more special when you know this so mary wicks voice of laverne Passed away in October of 1995, just weeks after recording this song. And they actually hadn't quite finished recording with her. So they actually had to get uh, a soundalike, an actress named Jane Withers, uh, who could perfectly mimic her voice. She she worked as a mimic and was, was an actress and did some commercials and things. Uh, so she actually had to like kind of touch up a few of the lines of that song and did a few more lines in the movie funny thing is, no one's quite sure what lines are there.
2: Were you listening to it? Now? You can't tell. See, for some, some reason, I always
0: thought that that last line was one,
2: the, it's possible because it is the last, but line, who knows? That so might just be an urban
0: legend. It's yeah, almost yeah. like a
2: be prepared, like as a kid, you never realized that Jim Cummings could yeah, but not yeah, one I like if I listened to like I
3: was listening, watching it
2: tonight, and I <coughs> yeah, you can't tell.
3: So, yeah, um, we we hinted at it, but we'll get into it. So, like the biggest change for the novels, like I said, Pierre Guenguer real-life poet, fictionalized in Hugo's novel to become one of the characters. Um, In the film, he is a mix of Phoebus from the book and this character. Frollo, in the book, is an archdeacon. And the Archdeacon's in the movie. He's voiced by David Ogden Stiers. Right. But Disney did not want to get
0: into any religious controversy with yeah. a, with their main antagonist being a priest. So, yeah, at this and pretty you can tell smart the, the, the new Archdeacon, very nice guy. Nice yeah. guy. He's
2: helping, so
0: does what he can. Right. They're doing a very good job to make sure that the church is pretty good.
3: And actually, I I found it's pretty anecdotal. It wasn't enough that I was comfortable to say this definitively. But from some, a few sources I saw from, like, some newspaper articles in the 90s, a lot of people of the religious community actually did like this movie. Um, they appreciated that, like, it, like their problems weren't solved by magic. That there was earnest prayer to God
0: in the movie, and that was kind of like the higher authority right. in the film. Not until the God makes that gargoyle fall in half and <laughs> kill bit. Yeah, a no one years. really brings that up. If we're going to have to talk about
3: okay, there's something going on, obviously. But yeah, it's, you know.
0: The, the, it's not, oh, the, it's not Wrath of God stuff. The
3: gist is, like, the religion of, of it was treated well. Mm-hmm. People seem to kind of be good with that aspect of it. So Quasimodo in the book is actually deaf. Uh, because the bells. rings the bells and the bell tower those are big bells Did so that kind of makes sense uh, and of course the ending of the book is a major bummer so I'm going to give a quick well, a lot of these
2: tend to be right, like, <laughs> like Little
3: Mermaid <laughs> let, let me know. give like the very quick version of, of, of the book and I mostly gleaned this from reading the comic that I went to so Pierre Gringard uh, kind of falls for this gypsy girl he sees but she falls for this captain named Phoebus uh, Gringar gets drunk one night stumbles around sees um, Quasimodo abducting Esmeralda along with a cloaked figure really? Ooh, what's going on here so he tries to stop it gets knocked out and then Phoebus comes and saves her <clears throat> so Gringard wakes up he's like oh where am I oh these streets all look the same he stumbles into the Court of Miracles they try to hang him for finding the place unless someone's willing to take him as a husband all the women are like nah it'd be more fun to watch him hang but Esmeralda's like eh I'll do it So they have this whole thing where she drops, he drops a pot and however many pieces it breaks into is how long they're married for is four pieces. Was four? So was that be four days? Four years. Four years. That's not that's not great. And she's like very quickly like, look, I just didn't want them to hang you like, don't touch me. (laughs) And he's like, all right, fine. <laughs> so fast forward and um, I'm I kind of... Just like, this.
0: you're a marriage ash guy. <laughs> uh, hey,
2: five years strong,
3: man. <laughs> she stuck around after breaking that pot into two pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't drop it very hard.
2: <laughs> so
3: so Esmeralda and Phoebus are like supposedly in love now. But he, you can kind of tell he's like, yeah, like, eh, she's hot. <laughs> she's like, he's my life. I love you. Mm-hmm. So he's going off to meet her. But some, this clo- uh, cloak figure is like, who are you seeing tonight? He's like, you lie. Take me and let me see. I'll just sit in the shadows. And he's like, eh, whatever, fine. Come on. Give me some money to buy drinks tonight. And yeah, you can follow me. Well, who do you, what do you know? This guy in the cloak is...
2: Frollo, the, oh, Arch, da, da, da. the Archdeacon
3: himself. Oh, no. Who is quite infatuated with Esmeralda, you see. So he sees this all going on. He gets all upset. So the two of them go upstairs to canoodle a bit, and he sneaks out of the shadows and stabs Frollo. It Esmeralda passes out in fear. And when she comes to, she's being arrested for the murder of Phoebus, the captain of Burr. Wait, wait,
0: wait, They stab Frollo, they stab Phoebus.
3: Frollo stabs Phoebus. So Frollo stabs they, Phoebus. And, and, and escapes, and right they there. blame Esmeralda. So she's like tortured till she confesses nice. to having killed him. A little torture. Uh, uh, you know, they show the goat telling time. They're like, witchcraft, hang <laughs> the
0: goat. Um, Always a safe precaution.
3: <laughs> yes. So meanwhile, um, Quasimodo is arrested for trying to kidnap her. He is uh, tied to the the rack and spun around and whipped and humiliated. Doesn't have the vegetables thrown at him. Right. So that's where that uh, visual in the movie comes from. Him tied to the thing and spun. That is from like the very famous Lon Chaney scene uh, is is very similar. Um, I'm out of order because (laughs) while that's going on, he's asking the crowd for water and they're mocking him. And Esmeralda is the one who goes up and gives him water. That happened earlier. Yeah.
0: <laughs> sorry, you're, like you're losing
2: the plot here. It's, Ch- it's very convoluted. I'm sorry. I'm trying real hard here. Um, yes. When does Frollo sing Hellfire? <laughs> he doesn't sing <laughs> Hellfire. <laughs> it's not in
3: there. Anyway, he's like super creep about the whole thing. He like just straight up goes and is like, "I'm in love with you. I'll I'll tell them not to hurt you if you say you'll marry me." And she's like, "Uh, no. <laughs> I'd rather they hang me." So. He's like watching from the top of the cathedral, and Quasimodo, meanwhile, is like, "Well, oh, she was nice to me."
0: Um <laughs> so and, and I was right. Very, so basically, everybody loves uh, Esmeralda, yeah. but
3: hint, like in the book, it's very much like it's not like like romantic love. For, it's very much kind of like a puppy love, like a maternal love well, in a way. Like I mean, yeah, yeah. So so she gets hung. Frollo starts laughing. Quasimodo's like, "F this!" pushes her off the bout ba- or pushes Frollo off the balcony. Uh, she burns at the stake or is hung or whatever. Phoebus, who is alive and she sees Phoebus and she's like, oh, Phoebus comes in. He's like, yeah, I'm getting married to this girl over here. I don't know. I'm kind of out. Gringard kind of just like went along with Frollo's plan to get rid of because He was like, whatever, I'm done too. She's kind of betrayed by everybody. It
0: sucks. Everyone betrayed me. I'm fed up with this
3: world. <laughs> More or less. Uh, he kills Frollo. Flash forward a few years later, someone's digging through the catacombs and they find... A kind of mangled skeleton with a screwed up vertebrae clinging on to a female skeleton, the end. That could have, that would have been a lovely last shot for the movie. Right? <laughs> yeah. Great visual there, the the, the bones intertwined. I mean, yeah. does
0: it bother you guys that we have the happy ending in the Not here? at all. No.
2: Not at all. I mean like Again, I said the kid's little, movie. Little Mermaid. Right. Every step she took on land was agonizing pain. Right. And, and she, when she died, she turned into sea she died and turned into sea foam. Right. <laughs> it's it's like, funny, it's like if it's a
0: fairy tale and you change it, it's one thing, but you don't like dare change this novel from hundreds of years ago <laughs> yeah, that right. I, I didn't read. <laughs> right. So yeah, we we got a happier movie out of this. So I mean you still get there's still the fake out with Esmeralda being dead, so you still kinda get the emotion of it. Right, right. You see his reaction. It's a very good performance by Tom Hulse in that moment. The, the crying in that scene is very good,
3: I have to say. Um, so this movie, of course, being, uh, kind of building off of what was done Beauty and the Beast and, and Lion King, uh, they're, they're experimenting more and more with CGI in this film. CGI in this movie allowed for unprecedented crowd sizes in the, uh, Cathedral Square. And this is kind of an evolution of the system they were working on with the build the beast but there where you had, you know, one creature who kind of looks the same, you could vary up the color and the cadence of their run a little bit. Here you're dealing with people. So... <laughs> What they created was a system that's not too dissimilar from, like, a rudimentary character creator in an RPG, where you have six different people, male and female, spread across average frame, thin and fat. From there, you have various costumes, color schemes, and accessories like masks, and you just kind of randomize that, and boom, you've got a crowd. They created 72 pre-programmed animations that could run on a loop, but you can see a few instances if you're really watching the movie where they can, like, keyframe it and do whatever they wanted with these people. So, as you guys were watching this, were you, like, kind of this is? the small, I've seen the this movie
0: a lot of times, and I was always kind of aware of, like, the crowd being slightly unnatural. But, like, this was the first time I was really looking at the crowd, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's 1996 strange. CG people. Right, man. but
3: again, you're not—it's
0: always framed in such a way that it's in the peripheral. Well, there's always usually, like, a key character— center frame doing something important that you're actually do, looking like, you know, at. There's like confetti
2: and right. stuff flying and yeah, there's a lot of other movement. Yeah, it's just there to give texture. But when right. you do like notice it, you're like, wow, how have I not seen this before? Exactly. It, it is strange. But then it, again, for 1996, pretty oh, impressive not stuff. It's, pretty it's, cool. it's not
0: that I mean, you know, what their previous movie, a lot of these people was Beauty and the Beast and the big CG thing there was just that one ballroom shot. Right.
3: You know, like I said, Lion King was the Wilder beast. and here, not only do you have these huge crowds, but then you have these incredible camera moves. Mm. So obviously at this point, they're full blown in the caps, which, um, had been in use for, for Beauty and Beast Aladdin and Lion King at this point. Um, so what they did is they, they use this a lot in the movie. And I think that w- w- what kind of makes it feel like a classic Disney film, they simulate the multi camera. Especially at the, the very beginning. Exactly. Look, so,
0: it's, it kind of reminds me of the opening of Pinocchio. Yeah, sorry, it's,
3: not, it's not 3D, but it has those layers of yes. parallax. It's depth
2: that it creates.
3: But there are certain shots in the movie. Like there's the one shot we noticed in the rafters of, of the bell tower. Where just the complexity of it couldn't have been done with, with the multiplayer. it pans too much. Mm-hmm. The multiplayer camera didn't have that much space. Mm. It creates just beautiful depth to the movie. but there are, there are a number of shots that are pure CG backgrounds with the characters' hand drawn on top, which it's funny, like you think about like Treasure Planet did that almost exclusively and how good that was. but when you watch this movie, they really pulled off. You could kind of see. Like the CG textures have that of kind things, of early, If you're really
0: looking at it for it, yeah. you can tell.
3: Yeah, it's that like it's a, a texture's graphic. one I think you're right. Yeah. But what like so the, the first one really is not out there when he comes sliding down the uh, the gutter. But what helps really sell it is the the, the architecture of the building is CG, Quasimodo's hand drawn the water is hand-drawn, okay. which is an it odd is detail,
0: but it, it helps sell it. Right. And again, you're mostly looking at
3: Quasimodo. Exactly. And then the, the other one is when he swings down from the rope into the square to save Esmeralda, and he oh, goes yeah, over really. that huge crowd. It's an incredible... And that the
0: never-ending line of rope he's using. <laughs> yes. Yes. It just <laughs> it's a magic and rope. Bigger and bigger and bigger. You always need a piece it's, of rope it's like this. Witchcraft. Kind
3: of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Witchcraft, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, you know, especially, you know, he's holding in the sanctuary, sanctuary, the big, like, oh, climax. There are so many just good shots. But the way, like, like, you know, for the cameras panning, he doesn't float in that
0: scene. He looks very grounded. It's incredible like, work by the end. Even animators. later movies, like, I remember a scene from Brother Bear, and I liked Brother Bear. There was a scene towards the end of the movie where, like, the camera's kind of, like, circling around them, and the characters, like, never quite look, like, they're planted right mm-hmm. in, like, that like that moving camera. They nailed it here. I mean, really it's very well. hard. It's very, very hard. I mean, this is going Bear. back to those tests that, uh, they did for that Where the Wild Things Are movie. Yes. This is basically the what that was. And that then this was in the eighties, so it was really crazy, but the whole thing there was 3D backgrounds with two D characters. Yeah, so the camera could do right. just crazy and things. That's what they're actually doing here now. Mm-hmm. So again we've hinted at it, but this movie has an incredible
3: soundtrack. Uh composed by Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. Is this is this your favorite
0: of kind of the that that Probably What what we what the third golden era, I guess you call it. The nineties. Yeah. <laughs> It, Probably, it's yeah, the
2: one you could continually listen to over and over. It's very reputable. yeah.
0: I just, I, so many good stuff. I mean, How specifically, right. man, do I like that song. Like, so
2: because none of the songs in here were like overplayed during that time, period, it helps, and that helps so much. Like, I, I'm not going to be listening to uh, um, Under the uh, Sea, yeah, like Under the Sea, <laughs> yeah. like
0: I, I like Under the Sea, I've heard Under the Sea enough for my
3: lifetime, yeah. yeah. So, um, Mencken and Schwartz have just come off Pocahontas obviously like they they had their pick like what do you guys want to work on next here's what we got going on they chose this movie um they they like the story that again they everyone seemed to be drawn to this movie and, and what what it promised so Macon actually composed the music for out there before they even left for paris like this is one of the mm-hmm. first things that he'd done so schwartz actually worked on the lyrics while at the cathedral itself like up in the towers and, and everything and uh he said he said in an interview that i'll link to that he did on his website that uh that really kind of influenced
2: that song. A it's really lot. incredible to hear that kind of process and yeah. and, how, and how they right. collaborate with that. You wouldn't and, think well, that it, at all. It, it's such a it's such a thing
3: that if, it felt like Disney at the time was did that other studios did like like yeah go to Paris like you need to go to Paris to see this place like to 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 get it you know
0: mm-hmm.
3: not not just to you know get make sure the building looks right but just to kind of get that
0: mindset. That's I, so important. I want to give a, kind of a shout out to Stephen Schwartz here, too, because obviously Alan Macon, Howard Ashman, that's like the power duo. Mm-hmm. It's and rightfully so. But the, the lyrics are incredible. Oh, in yeah. And
3: especially the way it drew in the kind of Latin hymns and, and, and church iconography. Iconography. Audiography. Audiography. Sure. Sure. That. But it's masterfully woven throughout this film. And then they, they really nail that style. So there are three songs that were written originally to be in the movie and were cut out of the film itself. Uh, the, the, the most obvious one is a song called Someday that was supposed to be kind of the, in the God Help the Outcast slot. Um, Kirk and Gary suggested something a little more religious in tone. Not a suggestion that it would be made today, I feel <laughs> yeah. like. So that's why God Help the Outcast came about. But they still like this song. So this was recorded by r and group All for One, and that's the song that plays over the really? All for one. Oh. There's a 90s group I haven't yeah. heard of. Wow. Yeah. Na-
0: Talk about 90s. <laughs> All for one. Woo. Yeah. Uh, now, this song is in, that, is in the stage version. Is it? Someday when we are older. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Good. There it is. Uh, <laughs> two, two more songs were cut from the
3: movie that were both. There they were like three songs that could have gone in the same place. So the two are As Long As There's a Moon and In a Place of Miracles. Uh, As long as there's a moon, I think it's on one of the DVD bonuses. I found it on YouTube. I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, But originally, when they first get to the Court of Miracles, um, it starts with that kind of same song that that Clopin sings, uh, we caught you and we're going to hang you. Hello, you're there. Then it goes into that part from the book I talked about where unless someone wants to marry you, we're going to hang you. And as comes out, I was like, I know that guy. Wait, Stop. And they do the whole gag with the the dropping of the pot. It breaks to a thousand pieces, which means a thousand years of marriage. Now we need someone to officiate the marriage. Quasimodo, the king of fools himself, come on up. And um, Oof, awkward, exactly. And and there was this uh, I want to call it gag, but the thing that happened in that scene where he um, marries them and he has to say some little one liner about the the marriage or something, Claphand. Pats him on the back. It's spoken like a true gypsy, which he is. Yeah. He doesn't know it. And then he there's like a goblet of wine and he looks down into it. And the distorted reflection makes him look, quote unquote, normal. I, and that's supposed to be like, oh, if only I looked like this, I'd be marrying her. So I've um,
0: heard about the scene only because apparently they loved that one moment when, right. looking, right. when he looks normal. And they hated losing that specifically. Right. So that was a song in a place of miracles. You can
3: hear the uh, the Al Mencken demo as part of this uh, storyboard animatic uh, that I'll link to. Uh, the other song, as long as there's a moon, was also considered for this part. Again, they wanted they really wanted like a love song between Esmeralda and Phoebus, but it took too much focus off of Quasimodo. Right. Uh, as long as there's a moon is in the stage version as well. It's kind of mixed with that heaven's light reprise. Mm-hmm. Where he's like, oh, she's
0: not gonna pick me after all. They gotta tear up this playing card now. Exactly. Symbolism. <laughs> it's <Symbolism. laughs> great. great.
3: So the movie came out uh, to a pretty good opening weekend, twenty nine point three million dollars on its opening weekend. It grossed a uh, million. Domestic. I mean,
0: in nineties, in the nineties, if you make a hundred million dollars, you're a blockbuster. Yeah. The problem was they're being compared to being Beast That's and Lion right. King*.
3: Someone was like, oh, but, what a what a failure. And it's like, well, okay, look, they can't all be the best movie yeah, of all wasn't time,
2: really. Uh, I mean,
0: again, considering that this is an animated movie based off of a gothic, like, French novel. Yeah, about religion. <laughs> you know, it grossed, uh,
3: you know, all, uh, all in international and everything, uh, 325.3 million. is the fifth highest grossing film in 96. What <laughs> would, would have been 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. So you guys remember like seeing this in
2: theaters? Not really. I, don't I know we
0: did. We did. Or at least I did. I I think, just, I, I'm sure we did. Yeah, It's funny because I remember, be. like, seeing Aladdin in mm-hmm. theaters very specifically. Yeah, me too. Because I, I know Pocahontas was the first one I didn't see right, the for right. whatever reason. I don't know why that was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Pocahontas was a hard sell for 12-year-old boys
3: like well, us or whatever.
2: You, yeah, like. This might be too, but...
0: I don't know. Even 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 when I was a kid, there was something like, this is, like, interesting. Well, it kind that, of, yeah, yeah. of rogue quality. And I don't know if I would have called it dark back in the day, but I'm like, there's something kind of, like, in, weird about this. Well, kind of, into. I think,
3: I think and, and Tad talked about this, too. Quasimodo, for, you know, a preteen, is pretty relatable. You know he, he's he's trying to not figure me. Figure I was a pure Chad.
0: Yeah, good for you. <laughs> right? you know, he's, he's, he's trying to figure out
3: where he fits in society. He meets a girl and likes her. Like you know, he falls in love with the first girl who's like kind of nice yeah, to him, kind of really nice and attractive. and attractive, which is like
0: pretty relatable. Whoa, shallow <laughs> that huh.
3: guy. It happens, is all I'm saying.
0: <laughs> all right? Yeah, man.
3: The legacy of the film. They made a sequel. The less talked about it, the better.
0: Well, I mean, we, we well, should the, watch Hushback and Ocean too 2 sometime.
2: Mike. Well, so the sequel, I remember hearing it. It was a television show, like they were doing with those movies. They, that happened 90s. a lot, yeah. And they basically just turned the first three episodes into oh, a. Oh, so is that one kind of thing yeah. again? Because they did that like with Atlantis. And yeah. <laughs> so, uh,
3: basically, it was like, Quasimodo should have a girlfriend. It's like, no, the <laughs> whole point, eh, never mind. Go ahead. Whatever. Michael Eiser said, do it. So <laughs> of Michael Eisner, apparently loves this movie. This is like that's for him. This is like yeah. his
0: favorite movie that they made while he was uh, in charge.
3: Good for yeah. him. Yeah.
0: Look, it's not all bad, Michael. I know he's a popular punching bag these days. But yeah, it's just
2: those last few years.
0: He, 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 yeah, he lost the plot a bit he there towards the end.
3: that yeah. uh, saying from Batman? Uh, die the hero, or, or yeah, you die Marvel's hero, live long so to cool. see, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the villain. Yeah. We we'll Okay, yeah. Uh, stage show. So you know, obviously Disney was bringing everything to Broadway. This seemed like a natural fit. Um, Now, for whatever reason, this movie did gangbusters in Germany. So as they're developing the stage, they're like, well, let's bring it to Germany first. So that's where it opened. Uh, Derek, you took German, Mike, how Uh, do you you say this correctly? The Glocknev on uh, Notre Dame. All right. It's the bell ringer of Notre Dame, not the hunchback, the bell ringer. Mm. Um uh, played the number of years in Germany. It was it was Berlin's longest running show, I believe, at the time.
2: Wow. Uh, never, but
3: yeah. never made it to Broadway itself. It played at the Paper Mill Playhouse in right. Millburn, New Jersey. Oh, this was so basically strange. like
0: previews if they were to do it on Broadway, but Disney basically got scared because I mean, just because of what this thing is, you know, and what it always was. It's like mm-hmm. these days they're like, oh, we really want to do this thing about the Catholic Church <laughs> mm-hmm. and in this time. And, and then also this is A darker version. This is the one where Esmeralda does die at the end.
3: A number of differences. So, like, kind of the um, instead of the three gargoyles, it's just like all the statues of the saints are kind of like the chorus. Uh, Very, very Greek in that way. And they talk to Quasimodo. They do a very interesting thing. It's kind of presented as a play within a play. There's that kind of framing device at
2: the beginning and the end. So that's kind of what the movie is too. A little bit, a little bit. With the opening, well, yeah, this the is intro much more like, of, like the
3: guy uh, who plays Quasimodo is like standing upright. He looks normal, and then they come out and literally put the mask on him. And, uh, he pushes, and the, he's
0: like now in Quasimodo. In the portrayal of Quasimodo, like he, uh, God, how do I? He, he, well, he speaks like he's deaf. He right. has that kind of mm. that kind of like yes master but then he like, like yeah. but when he sings it's still like the beautiful big sing song because it's all like really like in his head you know? exactly exactly um if you so this they made the album of this version this uh new jersey version in 2015 and it's like the production values of any broadway shows uh album yeah it, it's on like
3: spotify and apple music you need to listen to there's it there's also very good and I'll, I'll get the link to it there's a there's a youtube video making of um like the cast
0: recording and even the cast themselves said like if this couldn't go to Broadway we're so glad that we got to make the album at least Mm -hmm. so people kind of kind of hear it it is incredible the opening song is like it's 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 the same opening from the movie but it's it's telling a different story it's really setting up Uh, Frollo's kind of backstory and past, making him a bit more sympathetic. Mm -hmm. There are some original songs in here. Like, the one line in the movie where the gargoyle's like, oh, we're only made of stone, that has turned into this incredible song. And at the very end, like, the very, like, last, like, song, there's this reprise of that, and it's like it's Quasimodo like almost doing this like incantation as he like burns the lead that he's gonna pour so it is like one of my favorite musical moments (laughs) it is it is so hype (laughs) I get pumped I was one time I was on a plane I think I just listened to that 50 times in a row just like rewinding not the song. the whole on just like like, rewinding it's like 30 seconds long rewinding (laughs) it over it over it just get like pumped up this it is an incredible cast recording
2: and there's an extended heaven's light that's always my favorite
0: right and it's like Sung like a bit more uh like not quite as subdued as it is. It, it the guy they got to be Frollo he sounds a lot like uh Tony J. Yeah, yeah. Again, if you like Hunchback and Notre Dame, you should listen to this this kind of quote unquote off-Broadway version. Yeah. It is fantastic. It's real good. And uh regional productions of this show do come up, so if you ever see
3: one, it's not you know, it doesn't get the quite the play that Beauty and the Beast does. Right. Uh but if you see it come up, you should go check it you know, out. Maybe maybe someday Disney will be like, ah, oh, we'll put this on Broadway. Well, someday may come soon because this is
0: getting a live action remake oh, as they all are shocking I know but that's the thing with those live action remakes that kind of annoys me is uh, like they always like they never just use a song from the Broadway version usually usually they'll just make a new one that's not as good like being oh, the beast because being the beast has that awesome beast solo song um Instead, they just wrote a new song for the Beast that's not as good.
3: Yeah, it's fine, but it's not as good. Mm. But anyway, they announced this uh, this past January, January 2019. Uh, Josh Gad is producing, and he will play a part... I wonder who would he be. Use.
0: He's the goat. <laughs> he's the goat. <laughs>
3: Obviously,
0: he's going to be that, that that weird poet guy you're talking about. Yeah,
3: but uh, Megan and Schwartz are coming back to work on it. So, like you said, I'm sure they'll write like a new song. Yeah, um, probably will be a love song between uh, Phoebus and Esmeralda. You heard it here first. And um, they, uh, so far, it's just going to be called
2: Hunchback. Ooh. You gotta wonder what kind of like modern day like changes they would make to this. It, yeah, we talk a lot about you know. You, a, if a this movie was right now. Yeah. Yeah. are they
0: yeah. are they really going to make Frodo the archdeacon? Like, no, she'll stay, stay a judge. I right? imagine
3: like, and one of the ways they can avoid that controversy is is sticking pretty close to the animated film. You're like, well, we already did this; it didn't mm-hmm. change too much. Uh, but yeah, there was one canceled project apparently in, in 2013. There were all these announcements made of a TV series called Esmeralda that was going to be told from her perspective. Like, I,
0: what, like an animation, a live action? No, like
3: a live action. I think this is like like around the time like that Once Upon a Time was getting started That's up and totally yeah. And like search and search. Like I found all these articles talking about the announcement of it and then nothing. Hmm. I don't know what happened to it. I you know, obviously it didn't happen. You're
2: saving it for <laughs> Disney Plus. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> never we need say content. never. content. <laughs> never say
3: never. Wow. So, uh to kind of wrap it up, I just want to get you guys' thoughts. We just watched the movie again together, uh, before we record this. We've obviously seen this movie a number of times over the years. So kind of uh where does, well, where does this movie sit for you? How, like, what are your what are your big takeaways from it, Chris? To me,
2: it was always like, yes, this is one of my favorite uh, Disney animated movies. And watching it just now, it, it, far and away, it is number one in in my point of view. Like, like we talked, some of the things that some people think might be silly are off. Like the gargoyles just really work for me. Um, but man, that music, I just can't get over it. Mm-hmm. I just listen to it. I all think
0: the that's time. a big. It, it might be it's the best the soundtrack. Of, of any of them it is so fantastic and there are so many good disney animated movies in the 90s uh and late late 80s uh and i know a lot of people you know little mermaid aladdin lion king it, it's nice to see now i think hunchback is getting more love again which mm-hmm. is great to see even in the parks you see that more hunchback stuff is suddenly showing up a little bit there there's even a hunchback section in the newest fireworks show in magic kingdom it's kind of like, you know, getting the respect it deserves a bit.
3: That's you know, I, I didn't put in here, and I should have. They had that stage show at Hollywood Studios.
0: Yes. I completed yes. believe well, we that. Well, we talked about knows. it a little bit in our twenty four We did, we did. So we did and touch on it, and that was a great show. It was a great show, and it ran for a very long time because it was so popular. Mm-hmm. And there are good YouTube and recordings of it. Again, it ran for the, so long. Part of the reason is that the music's good. You know, yeah. that, that's music you want to see performed. And that, I think that is this, the cool legacy of this movie is, I think when it came out, people were so skeptical of it that some people were just never going to accept it and they could easily point at something like the gargoyles and be like, oh, look, of course, they dumbed down the story. And I think now the, it's like the opposite. It's like, I can't believe Disney actually went there. Right. In the well, 90s. yeah,
3: well, even, even watching it now, like, you kind of break down the movie. You're like, wow, this is about a creepy old guy who wants to have sex
2: with a girl. Pretty much. I once (laughs) heard... That's that's what it's about. It will burn down Paris to do it.
0: I once (laughs) heard the plot of this movie distilled as creepy old guy gets his first boner and doesn't know how to deal with it. But I mean, you know... Esmeralda. Um, Esmer- I mean, not that the scene qu- where qu- he smells her hair. Yeah, that's it that's a creepy. creepy scene. And he says, she's
2: like, "I know what you're imagining." Like,
0: yeah, it's like ooh. guess what?
2: And then you get kind of over your head as a twelve year old. and You're like, ooh, oh, yeah, it's yeah, that's not good. And maybe that's why it holds up because as you age and you yeah, watch the again, you pick up on these subtleties of. I mean, and it's just so beautiful of yeah. a the movie. There are uh, so many shots you're just like, wow. Yeah, like like incredible. like there's so many freeze frames when he's breaking the chains and they slowly come off him as he's rising up. So at the end of Out There where its framed. so it's not that he's like standing in the middle
0: but like where like the one break between the two towers is he's in the middle of that and just looks so good and we should say too, he, just uh, just the,
3: the depiction of Notre Dame itself cuz it's as much a character, a character as yeah. anything and
0: what else. i what i think is so interesting again having been there like Notre Dame's big it's not nearly as big as it appears to be in the movie they almost kind of give it this Large larger first than shot life it's, like it's rising above yes, the Yes, <laughs> right and it's like it's cool cuz it makes it like bigger than bigger than life, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way that we kind of culturally perceive it. Right.
3: Yeah, it is, again, f- this movie has always been one of my absolute favorites.
0: I I've, I've always loved the uh the, the music, the aesthetic it's of it. It's certainly my favorite of the like
2: post-lanking 90s Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It and maybe and really just would, my favorite, maybe so just it's my compared, So that would be like Tarzan, so Pocahontas. Pocahontas,
0: Pocahontas this then uh Hercules Tarzan. Tarzan, Mulan. Uh,
2: oh man, so yeah. many good. Guys. Yeah, there's a lot of. Right right a lot up of to Lilo and
0: Stitch. Lilo and Stitch is 2000s. Lilo and yeah. Stitch is fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, they're all. I like all of those. Yes. To be honest, oh
3: yeah, for sure, for sure. The 90s are. Hey, we picked a good decade to come Yeah, from right. the show. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, I mean, this movie and it's good to see that. Like, you know, Tab talked about it when I when I spoke to him how there's this generation of, of kids, us who grew up with this movie, who are now in their, you know, approaching their thirties, have kids of their own. And, and this movie really kind of held on in a weird way. That wasn't so obvious, you know, in 1996, that, that has really kind of come forward, uh, today. And, uh, like you said, I, I I think we're seeing more and more of it in things like the parks. Um, and, and especially if they make the live action, I'm sure that'll renew interest. You will all of a sudden have all these defenders like, Oh, they can't touch the animated film. It's too
2: beloved. You
3: know, um, yeah, this movie's absolutely incredible. I'm hoping, it, I think it's due for a 4K re-release here pretty soon. But well, it'll be on Disney+, Plus, right? At some point. Maybe, yeah. Because right now, the, only, the, the most recent release of it is a Blu-ray DVD combo bundle that didn't even include a digital copy. Came uh, with the
0: Hunchback to on too, though. It did. Just it was a case. double
3: feature. Uh, where you could get it digitally for like 18 bucks on all the digital marketplaces. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think this movie's due for for one of those 4K editions. I know Aladdin just got one with the live acted like a double feature
2: mm-hmm.
3: but that one like pay full price for both
0: <laughs> yeah this, this movie is incredible and uh, I hope you've all enjoyed well, uh, kind of I, this, this look back at I it I think he did a great job as guy doing the show justice and awesome interview thank uh,
3: you thank you like good. I said again once again uh, to, to wrap the show I gotta once again say thank you to Tad Murphy um, really that, that was just an absolute delight to talk oh, to it's him it was great and, to listen to and, so and learn, insights learning to yeah it, And he was so happy to talk about it. I I just got that sense that he's really jazzed at people. Well, that's what's great. And listening to
2: it, you could you could tell he's still enthusiastic about it mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. all I, I feel like we years. should watch Gorilla, in the <laughs> go ahead,
0: Gorilla and the Miss I'm pretty sure I saw that
2: like <laughs> in high school because I, I know
3: I've seen a movie with Sigourney I mean, Weaver and
0: Gorillas Like, so I, I've seen that movie I mean, now it's... that he's our best friend or <laughs> yeah obviously, <laughs> obviously. so alright so I, th- I th- you two have had your chance now to do episodes I think I'm going to take the reins again what are we doing next well, Mike? well I think we're going to go back to the parks yeah. I heard there's some interesting things going on in Epcot these days <laughs> <Don't say. laughs> so I thought maybe we go to Epcot and uh, look at... One of the few thrill rides that I absolutely love, Test Track. Oh, this oh, would be Ma- a good one. Mike won't do much, but he'll ride in the car. Now, not that Pseudotron Test Track we have now. Which is which, pretty which good. I still like, but that real
2: industrial crash dummy Did Test Track. Did you turn off the machines? Uh <laughs> Is this going to be de- delayed a month? And then, oh,
0: <laughs> yeah. actually, actually
2: coming in 2021.
0: <laughs> We've reopened Horizons quick.
3: <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's, I don't, I, oh, now I feel pressured to, like, find somebody who worked on the ride, to interview. Find some Imagineers, <laughs> we'll Mike. see. Get on it. We'll see. Just, just you know, search Facebook. It hey, turns hey, out it You're works. just a cast member who worked at the ride. There we go. There's got to be somebody. <laughs> I want to find, find the two people from the, the video. There you go. <laughs> Find one of yeah. them. A random test, yeah. Pick
2: one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I picked a crash test. I won't cancel I loved <laughs> how, in like, for a couple years, that always got laughs. Yeah. <laughs> and towards the end, everyone's like, yeah, yeah. yeah Disney loved putting you in that
2: room and making you watch it's a movie. It's still hard to go <laughs> to dinosaurs. <laughs> dinosaurs <laughs> the I, only
0: one left. I can't. No, mission Space Redid there. <laughs> <laughs> they got rid of the yeah. star. Yeah. Gary Sineese. The
2: script is exact gone.
0: Gary is gone. Can't yeah. afford him anymore. But it is yeah, right. the same script. Um, anyway.
3: So that'll be. Uh, our show for October in the meantime uh, you all enjoy the gentle transition from summer to fall as September oh, I love fall. it well we, we'll have we, we're in fake fall right now which fake means fall's in, pretty good. in about 10 days we're going to get be back in the second summer Then we'll get, like, a 30-degree day. Then it'll, like, warm up to the 60s. Then it'll be fall for two weeks. Then it'll be winter. (laughs) Stop it. If if you're in Ohio,
0: you know what I'm talking about. You're giving me anxiety.
3: (laughs) Thank you once again for listening, everybody. You can find uh, all of our episodes hosted uh, on our Anchor profile by going to 90sdisney.com, 90sdisney.com. Check out our uh, previous episodes. Check out our future episodes by subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, over podcast, podcast, and some other ones I'm forgetting. Anchor, I said that He led with Anchor Yeah, it started with Anchor I just ignore you sometimes
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm aware <laughs> I do I'm aware I'm fully aware
3: And hey, while you're in those directories of your choice We would love it if you would leave us a five-star review Because that helps people find the show And uh, tell a friend about the show Because uh, obviously we we're three guys just kind of doing this because we like it And uh, we don't have a marketing yeah. match It might shock you to know So if you told a friend about the show, boy, we'd appreciate that In the meantime, you all stay rad, and we'll see you next month on 90s Disney. Goodbye. Bye.